Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today in the wake of the U.S. military departure from Afghanistan is the man who helped plan the air campaign 20 years ago that toppled the Taliban, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, the former chief of the service's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities, who is now the dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Dave, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you bet, Bob, Vago. It's, a, it's great to be here again and uh, chat about uh some of these important topics. Uh, an, an absolute pleasure. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and trade show. Uh, Dave, this campaign started uh, with air power working with U.S. Uh, special operators uh, and the Northern Alliance to collapse the Taliban regime weeks after 9-11. Uh, it, this phase of it ended with the largest and fastest air evacuation in history. And it's going to continue, as the president has said, with over-the-horizon capabilities. You were uh, the general officer who was in charge of just advancing, developing the analytic as well as the collection capabilities of the service. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how the United States needs to use over the horizon capabilities and how effective they will be to keep terror groups from uh, regrouping in Afghanistan and using it as a safe haven from which to attack the United States and its allies. Well, thanks, Vago, for the opportunity to, uh, to chat on that. First, uh, <laughs> I'm... Uh, kind of flabbergasted and amazed that the military uh, dominated by ground force leadership has come up with another euphemism uh, for what is actually air and space power over the horizon forces. Come on, give me a break. This is air power that we're talking about. Now, with respect to the way ahead in Afghanistan, I think it's important to strip away the political rhetoric and acknowledge that the president did not end the war. He just changed the character of it in Afghanistan by pulling out U.S. presence on the ground. Counterterrorism operations, um, as you uh, mentioned or allude to in your question, they're going to continue. Um, and what I would tell you is that our actions uh, are going to be driven by the degree to which the terrorist threats to the U.S. evolve. Um, if they grow, uh, as many people think they will uh, in that part of the world, then you're going to see a corresponding growth in the degree of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance overwatch and possible lethal action taken by air operations over that country, like we saw over the past week um, with the MQ-9 Reaper drone attacks against key terrorist elements. Um, if terrorist threats in Afghanistan decrease, then aerospace operations are still going to be used uh, to monitor and control to the degree necessary uh, the terrorist risk in the region uh, uh, to the U.S. But uh, aerospace power um, is the key U.S. asymmetric advantage uh, in the counterterrorism fight because it allows us to project power without the vulnerability of land forces or boots on the ground. 
Air and space operations are the optimal way to accomplish monitoring and then controlling of any terrorist threat uh, to the US. Now, at some point, and in some circumstances, small numbers of special operations forces uh, may be involved depending upon the circumstances and if their insertions absolutely required. Of course, the only way they can get into Afghanistan is by airlift, which is another form of air power that, as you mentioned, we've seen a lot in the news um, uh, recently. But ultimately, we may go back to the equation that worked so well in those opening months of enduring freedom and that's air power in conjunction with small elements of special ops forces uh, to control uh, the, the terrorist threat to the U.S. I, I'd like to remind your audience that we already do this with little fanfare in other parts of the world. Uh, again, right. what's ended here is the continuous U.S. ground force presence, and, and frankly, that was long overdue. Uh, let me uh, take you to the question of, you know, as you, as you said, the insertion of soft troops uh, as needed. Um, there are those who say that there is no way to fight uh, a complex operation like this without having uh, American uh, boots on, on the ground. How do you respond to those uh, who say that? Because it is becoming increasingly clear that at some point, the United States is more likely than not to work with the Taliban to address what is a common foe. Uh, certainly the ISIS-K group that was responsible uh, for the deaths of uh, 13 American soldiers, the wounding of 18, as well as more than 170 Afghans. Um, ultimately, do you need to have American boots on the ground to do this mission, or can you actually get into a working relationship with other forces who may be on the ground to help you designate uh, as, as necessary? Well, um... It's an interesting question. It's a good question. It's a common question, but it also indicates that those asking it, well, no, not those asking it, um, but, but those who make this, the, the unqualified statement that you have to have boots on the ground to be able to enable air power, um, haven't done much study of history. Um, because in the last major regional conflict that the United States actually was engaged in, um, Operation Desert Storm uh, over 30 years ago, uh, that was a 43-day operation. For the first 40 days, there were no boots on the ground, and we did a pretty damn good job in paralyzing and bringing Iraq to its knees. So you don't have to have boots on the ground uh, to conduct effective military operations uh, using uh, uh, air and space power. Um, do they enhance operations in certain circumstances? Yes. But today, even more today than ever before, because of the ubiquitous nature of social media and communications, information can be extracted and derived uh, uh, <laughs> through a variety of means without having any U.S. forces on the ground. Uh, so... Uh, they're, they're, everything is situation specific. There may be situations where you want to get uh, and work with special ops folks on the ground, but there are plenty of other ones that can be accomplished without any U.S. forces on the ground. 
let me um, ask you the question about um, discrete capabilities insofar as classification allows, because I know that you're uh, aware of other capabilities uh, aside from what we have um, publicly advertised, some of which which you uh, helped originate when you were uh, on the job. Do we have the capabilities we need now to influence what happens in Afghanistan? Uh, and what are the additional capabilities that we would need to build up for us to be able to to do this? Because as you said, uh, it's it's unsung the role of air power worldwide um, in encountering these extremist forces, no matter where they are around the world. Well, it's kind of an open ended question, and it's difficult to talk about things that uh, we can't talk about. <laughs> uh, but at the same time. Uh, what I would tell you is there are a panoply of capabilities that the United States possesses that will allow it to effectively conduct counterterrorism operations, regardless of where that might be around the world. One of the questions um, that has repeatedly come up is over the past three decades, the United States has gotten very used to being able to operate with uh, impunity just about anywhere in the world. Uh, even in uh, Syria, where we found that the Russians had deployed capable air defenses, our stealthy assets have been able to operate in and around that airspace. What happens if, for example, Russia and China deploy triple-digit SAM capability to Afghanistan for no other reason than to complicate our lives? Because when you talk to senior leaders, there is this expectation, well, the Taliban can't stop us from operating over Afghanistan. That's true unless somebody fields capabilities, you know, I mean, not not to bring up Mike Wynn, Mike, Mike Wynn, the, the Soviets didn't kill Mike Wynn's brother, but the Soviet capability that was exported to North Vietnam is what killed Mike Wynn's brother, right? So you could have very, very sophisticated weaponry ending up in a, a conflict that you may not have considered to be as sophisticated at the time you started it. What happens if in that eventuality, will we be able to operate with as much impunity after that as we do at the moment? Um, the short answer is yes. Um, there are a variety of different options to deal with that particular um, hypothetical um, that you laid out there. Um, you, you know, remember, we don't always have to meet force with force. Um, so there are ways to negate those triple digit surface to air missile systems that don't necessarily involve direct attack. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but this also speaks, this whole conversation also speaks for the continued value of low observability or, or stealth. Because what it does is it allows one to increase the likelihood of survivability while decreasing the potential of, de of detection uh, and it reduces the capability of any weapon system. Uh, that combined with other tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, can essentially render those surface-to-air missile systems uh, ineffective. Uh, so, yeah, is it a complicating factor? Yes. Um, is it such a complicating factor that it would prohibit U.S. operations? Absolutely not. Are there any additional capabilities we need to be able to do this uh, job over a country as large as and and uh, complicated terrain wise as Afghanistan, or do we have the capabilities 
that we've developed over the last 20 years, or, or are there any additional capabilities that will be needed from your standpoint? Um, well, we are where we are. I mean, I'd love to accelerate the potential of directed energy weapons so that we can employ uh, at the speed of light. Um, but, you know, that'll happen when it happens. Uh, it's certainly not necessary to accomplish our uh, national security objectives uh, in uh, that counterterrorism operations today. Is it a nice to have? Yeah. Will it be game changing when we get it? Yeah. Um, but we're not there yet. And now a word from our sponsors. General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Um, I want to ask you, uh, Dave, uh, you know, there, there is some discussion about whether or not uh, the withdrawal was a success. Uh, I know that that's a complicated question, but ultimately the United States thought that the Afghan government was going to last longer. There was an expectation, including by our allies, that the Taliban would not regain control as quickly uh, as they did, and that the Afghan uh, forces melted as quickly as they did. There's a lot of debate about our contractor logistics folks ended up leaving with troops, therefore leaving uh, our Afghan allies vulnerable. For others, it was the ultimate manifestation of the corruption and some of the other challenges uh, that existed that were much harder to tackle um, than, than we had expected. But ultimately, what was conducted was on a short turnaround, one of the largest uh, airlift operations and fastest airlift operations in history. Would you consider the withdrawal a success, ultimately? Well, I think there, uh, there, there are a couple of answers to that question. Um, at the operational tactical level, um, the old adage, piss poor planning makes for poor performance is applicable here. Uh, first, with a complete US military exit as the goal, one we've known about for over a year, um, US citizens and Afghan personnel at risk should have been evacuated well prior to removing our key forces. In the interest of time, I'm not going to go into, into, into details, but a, you know the, the fact that we uh, uh, closed down Bagram and moved out all our key leveraged air power forces prior to the evacuation um, was uh, unconscionable. Um, Second, the evacuation was driven by the calendar versus conditions. This guaranteed that American citizens would be left behind. Military action should be conditions-based and should not be driven by arbitrary timelines and certainly not timelines driven by political opportunism. I could go on, but you get the message. Now, CENTCOM had 20 years to develop a sound evacuation plan, but clearly it didn't. Now, on a positive note, the military airlift operations were absolutely magnificent and were the only reason over 122,000 people were evacuated. So it's important for folks to understand that air power is not just a clenched fist, but can also be a helping hand. And it certainly proved itself in that regard in uh, this operation. Um, I, I should point out, right, General McKenzie has said uh, that there was uh, a withdrawal uh, plan uh, and that ultimately the president has said that the August 31 date was uh, the, the only reason why American forces were not being shot at uh, and, and agreed to that date to, uh, as, as part of the withdrawal agreement that President Trump uh, struck in February 2020. And I believe May 1 was, was the exit date 
there. Let me. Yeah, let well, me we can have a long discussion on that, Vago, but I don't buy into the fact that um, uh, that the current president had to stick with what the previous president wanted to do. He hasn't done that in many other things. He didn't have to do it here, which goes back to my point on situations like this need to be conditions driven, not calendar driven. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's, a, that's an important lesson learned here. Um, one of the things that the president uh, has said is that we do not want, we should not be engaging in these complicated, open-ended, uh, poorly defined uh, missions. We should have objectives in mind, uh, exit criteria in mind, and not be doing nation building, uh, which we have seen time and again is something problematic and we as a nation have somewhat less patience for uh, ultimately. Um, what are the lessons from Afghanistan, from Iraq. We had Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn and Becca Wasser from the Center for a New American Security on last week, talking about the lessons from the Gulf War today, till today, as well as the lessons from Inherent Resolve, the mission in Syria. From your standpoint, as somebody who has been directly involved as either a planner, a shaper, uh, an influencer, and an advisor of every air campaign since 1990, what are the key lessons from the air operations we've been conducting over the past 20 years, uh, 30 years, uh, really, that are applicable to deterring other great powers, which is the phase that we are now more actively going to be focused on? Well, it's a wonderful question. Um, I'd like to up it up. I'd like to take it up a notch in terms of not just um, lessons learned from the air power perspective, but from military engagements writ large. And, and here's something. Um, that I think the president got right. Uh, and, and that is, uh, and this is the biggest lesson that I think has come out of this recent endeavor. And it's one that's applicable. It goes all the way back to Desert Storm. Uh, and it's a strategic level lesson. And it's perhaps the most important. That being the critical US security objectives must be clearly identified, adhered to, and when accomplished, appropriate action taken. Now, let me get down in a little bit more detail and address what happened in Afghanistan. Um, we, we met our critical US national security interests in Afghanistan by the end of December, 2001. There were three, the removal of the Taliban from power, assisting a new government to protect our interests in the Afghan people. And the last one, eliminating the Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. As you alluded to, Thanks to the measured application of air power in conjunction with a light footprint of special ops, both partnering with indigenous forces on the ground, we accomplished these objectives in three short months. So the trillion dollar question is why did the US not declare victory then and there? Now I tell you there are several answers to that. The biggest one being that the dogma of ground-centric joint doctrine inhibited the realization that our objectives had been achieved. The central command leadership at that time, December 2001, had not even completed the deployment planning of phase three of the supposed joint playbook known as decisive operations that is nothing more than a euphemism for introducing a large ground force. What actually happened is after large numbers of US and coalition ground forces got in place, they found out that, okay, Taliban's out of power. 
Al Qaeda in Afghanistan has been negated and a friendly government was in power. So they looked around for a mission and it became winning hearts and minds. I'm here to tell you, Bago, neutering Al Qaeda and eliminating Afghanistan as an Al Qaeda sanctuary were critical US security objectives, but attempting to turn Afghanistan into a modern Jeffersonian democracy was not. So when we shifted from a strategy of counterterrorism to one of counterinsurgency, we shifted from a set of strategic objectives that were vital to the US to a new set of objectives that were not. So at the time, early to mid 2002, we should have said, hey, we're out of here. See you later. Have a nice life. But if you do it again, we'll be back. Instead, we poured hundreds of thousands of ground forces into Afghanistan over the next two decades after these vital security objectives were realized. So this mission creep is not going to be easy to admit, but it's absolutely necessary to recognize if we're going to avoid similar outcomes in the future. And it also highlights the failure of the ground-centric nation-building via land occupation strategy embraced by Central Command and perpetuated by four presidents and 20 years of U.S. military joint staff dominated by land warfare officers who did not learn the lessons of Vietnam. So how do we look? So what are the lessons from an air power perspective from the kind of operations we've been doing because there is a sense that we have been operating over uncontested uh, air, airspace. What are the elements that, from your perspective, what are the things that we learned over the last 20 or 30 years that are applicable to deterring China and, and Russia? And then I have a follow-up question before we wrap. Well, what, what deters China and Russia is that leadership, strong leadership matters. The larger question raised by what's happened recently in Afghanistan is if our current national security leadership couldn't accurately assess the capability of Afghan military forces against the Taliban or grasp the consequences of a hasty American withdrawal, how can they be depended upon to accurately design American military strategy and lead our forces against far more challenging adversaries such as China or Russia? I got to tell you that these are these are strategic issues. The loss of confidence in the US by our allies in Europe and the Indo-Pacific region is gonna reduce the US ability to deter and influence events. And what's not apparent, quite frankly, is the path to recovery. Now, I know you want me to address air power, so I will. First, as I mentioned before, air power is our asymmetric advantage. So we better we better be prepared and do everything we can to make that asymmetric advantage as relevant and capable in the, in the capacity that we're going to need to be able to first deter potential aggression. And if deterrence fails, to then be able to fight and win. And today we have the smallest oldest and least ready air force in the history of the nation. That needs to be, you know, focus area number one. And if you listen to, or if you, well, let me just say, I, you know, the, the takeaway from what's going on right now inside the Pentagon is that the planning guidance that has been given to the services is very specific on understanding and embracing 
the necessity of strong air and space power forces. But if you take a look at the fiscal direction, it doesn't equate to what's in the planning guidance. Uh, and so, I, you know, it, it comes down to being able to modernize what's become our geriatric air force so that we can deter and if necessary, defeat um, uh, peer adversaries uh, and stamp out uh, adventurism uh, in aggression where it's necessary around the world. Secretary Kendall has been talking uh, about the need to improve Air Force capabilities uh, with a sense of great urgency in order to continue deterring uh, China and Russia. And there is uh, evidence that he is working hard to that end. Obviously, General Brown uh, and his team uh, have been working in that direction as well. From your standpoint, is he on the right track? And what else does the United States Air Force have to do in the wake of this mission to regear uh, the way it needs to regear? for those kind of peer adversaries. Secretary Kendall's on the right path and Chief Brown is on the right path. And it just, what you just reiterate, what you just asked me to repeat is what I just told you. The Air Force is underfunded, um, it's under-resourced, it's too small, it's too old, and it's too unready uh, to meet the demands of the national security strategy. Just a couple of years ago, the Congress directed the Air Force to conduct a study, uh, which asked it to, hey, what is it that you actually, what kind of force structure and elements do you need to meet the needs of the current national defense strategy? And they came up with 386 operational squadrons. That was both air and space forces. Well, that's about 24% larger, more force than we currently have. And it doesn't even address the age issue. You know, I was, I, I was about to say that, you know, our average fighter is 30 years old. The youngest right. B-52 is 58 years old. I mean, come on. Uh, we need to put that. So the single greatest thing, it's not something that the Air Force needs to do. It's something that the Department of Defense and the United States Congress needs to do. And that's to provide the resources to enable the Air Force to conduct the missions that will be absolutely necessary to prevent conflict through deterrence and win if in fact that deterrence fails. So it, it comes back down to that simple of a response. Resource the forces, the air forces that are necessary to meet the needs of the strategy that you outlined. Um, I, well, you, you're going to join us in uh, a couple of weeks because obviously the Air Force Association uh, is going to be soon hosting its airspace cyber uh, conference in person this time uh, at National Harbor. And I know uh, everybody uh, is uh, very excited uh, to be there uh, in person uh, to see friends that they haven't seen in quite a long time. Let me ask you one last question briefly. You were the chief of Air Force Intelligence, uh, Dave. Um, why is it that we are as strategically surprised as often as we are surprised. 9-11 happened in part because we didn't see something that was very obvious that was metastasizing in front of us. The dots were there. We weren't connecting them. Uh, there are those who argue that one of the reasons we went to Iraq was a fear that we weren't connecting dots. So we may have overreacted in doing that mission, right? We became so convinced of Iraq's 
uh, WMD capabilities that we moved in there because we were afraid that the next 9-11 would be with WMD. Uh, and, and when it came, as you mentioned, uh, a, a best and brightest national security team of experienced people and thoughtful people missed what was something that a lot of people warned, which is that the Taliban uh, are, are likely to take over faster than uh, expected, right? Uh, and again, it's a judgment question. What concerns people are not necessarily the eaches, but uh, well, right, you got Afghanistan wrong, you got Iraq wrong, you got COVID wrong, and now you got this wrong. Why should we trust whatever you have to say? Why is it that we keep being so strategically surprised when it comes to intelligence, often when it's really staring us in the face? We've been talking about China's capabilities for two decades, and we're still not moving as quickly as we need to counter the capabilities they're fielding. I mean, they've stayed on course and track, right? Uh, so we're in a, you know, in naval parlance, uh, constant bearing decreasing range uh, doesn't end well for you, right? Why is it that we're surprised? What do we need to do differently when it comes to intelligence and strategic planning? Because we're missing it. And it's sending, that's the worst signal that we're sending to our allies and partners as well as our adversaries. Well, first, I think if you did an analysis of your question, um, which was really a treaty on its own, but that's okay. I, <laughs> if we do an analysis <laughs> of your question, you answered it. The issue isn't intelligence um, or the intelligence community or what intelligence is derived. All it was, it was all there. All of those indicators, uh, those were all presented to the national security leadership. And you, you also mentioned it. it. It is an issue of judgment by the senior most national security team. And, and, and so that, that's, it's the interpretation of the intelligence. It's not that the intelligence wasn't there and it wasn't right. Um, now, look, uh, uh, to every particular circumstance, there are, you know, very specific circumstances. But I think in general, the issue isn't one on an intelligence failure. It's one on the manner in which that intelligence was interpreted by the senior most leadership and the decisions that they made. Now, listen, uh, let me shift gears here for a second, because uh, before we sign off, I, I really want to reiterate, uh, you know, given uh, what we've discussed uh, today, which has been very important and I appreciate it, that at a tactical level, the efforts of the military men and women who fought in Afghanistan were a success in every way. The issue is that the same was not the case when assessing U.S. operations in Afghanistan from a strategic perspective. Um, commanders of the Afghanistan effort grew committed to a means, that being occupation, versus the desired effect, that being a state not harboring terrorists. And as such, the entire scope of the war morphed away from the entire reason for the operations. We were there because we were there. So the, the large-scale ground occupation effort that marked the past two decades in Afghanistan was a failure of strategy and it should never be repeated. Uh, I think that there needs to be some serious oversight investigations here as there were post-Vietnam. Um, we just can't forget that this was not managed properly. Uh, and this will be uh, uh, challenging given that 
it's going to challenge a generational leadership that's currently in charge. Uh, and I also think it needs to be uh, or include an inquiry as to whether jointness is actually being realized uh, and applied. Uh, but again, uh, at the tactical level, the soldier, sailor, airmen, and Marines and guardians have participated in uh, Afghanistan. And we saw a great example of this in the airlift operations uh, that were just concluded. Um, they performed magnificent, magnificently and they conducted their assigned missions uh, with complete success. Dave, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again soon uh, to talk about what we should expect to hear from Air Force leaders as we go into AFA uh, and look forward to hearing from uh, General Wright uh, as well uh, about what's in store for us at uh, Aerospace uh, Cyber this year. Thanks so much again. You bet, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.